Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film's so highly regarded. I'm Trey Hooks, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Blaine Dowler. How are you doing, Blaine? I'm doing well. How about you, Trey? Very well, thank you. This time we're looking at the 25th Annual Academy Awards, covering films released in 1952, and the Best Picture of best picture winner of that year, The Greatest Show on Earth, directed and produced by Cecil B. DeMille. The film was released on January 10th, 1952, and featured Charlton Heston as Brad Braden, Betty Hutton as Holly, Cornell Wilde as The Great Sebastian, Gloria Graham as Ginger, with Dorothy Lamore as Phyllis, James Stewart as Buttons, and the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. Our synopsis comes to us today from uh, Wikipedia. Brad Braden is the no-nonsense general manager of the world's largest railroad circus, the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. The show's board of directors plans to run a short 10-week season rather than risk losing 25000 a day in a shaky post-war economy. Brad bargains to keep the circus on the road as long as it makes a profit, thus keeping the 1,400-plus performers and roustabouts employed. However, Brad faces several challenges in keeping the show in the black. His first problem is his girlfriend, Holly, a flyer who expects to star in the show. Brad has to give her the unfortunate news that she will not be in the center wing because part of his compromise with the board is bringing on a name act, in this case, the Great Sebastian, a world-class trapeze artist. Holly is furious because she loses the circus ring and because Brad continues to put the show ahead of their relationship. Sebastian happens to be a ladies' man whose affairs always call trouble for the shows. In addition, Brad has to look out for crooked midway concessionaire Harry, who works for a gangster named Mr. Henderson. Ringing Brothers runs a clean show, and Henderson knows Brad won't put up with much. Trouble's also brewing for the beloved Buttons the Clown. In one of the earlier circus performances, Buttons' mother warns him that they are asking questions. Button appears to have a medical background, and Holly finds a newspaper article after a show about a mercy killer, a doctor who killed the woman he loved but Holly does not make a connection between the newspaper article and Buttons. Sebastian has two former lovers on the show, Angel, who performs in the elephant act with the pathologically jealous Klaus, and Phyllis, who does a double turn as an iron jaw artist and vocalist in a South Sea extravaganza. Holly and Sebastian challenge each other for attention during their performances, doing ever-increasing daring and dangerous stunts. The duel ends when Sebastian removes his safety net and suffers serious injuries in a fall when a stunt goes wrong. 
Buttons tends to him, and the show's doctor expresses admiration for Buttons' skill. Holly finally has the center ring and star billing, but not the way she wanted it. Brad cannot comfort her because now she's in love with Sebastian. When Harry is caught cheating customers on the midway, Brad fires him. Harry vows revenge. He's seen every once in a while on the periphery of the show, shooting craps and sowing disaffection, particularly with Klaus. Several months later, Sebastian rejoins the show. His right arm is paralyzed. A guilt-ridden Holly professes her love for her former rival over the unfeeling Brad. Angel calls Holly a fool for busting up the swellest guy in the circus and makes a pass at Brad. They become an item. Klaus cannot accept that Angel does not want him. At the end of one show, Spatial Agent Gregory of the FBI appears on the lot during Teardown and asks Brad whether the circus doctor resembles a man he's hunting. Brad, never having seen Buttons without his makeup, does not recognize the man in the photo. The detective boards the train to continue his investigation. When Buttons tells Brad that Sebastian has feeling in his injured hand, a sign that his disability is not permanent, Brad makes the connection and casually observes to Button that the police will be taking fingerprints at the next stop. He implies to Buttons he should make himself scarce until Gregory leaves the show to search elsewhere. Harry and Klaus stop the first of the circus's two trains to steal the day's receipts. Klaus sees the second section coming and realizes that Angel is aboard. He drives the automobile head-on toward the train in an attempt to signal the engineer to stop the train. The second section smashes the car off the tracks and crashes into the first section. In a spectacular collision that derails train cars, breaks animal cages, opens shreds equipment, and injures people by the score. Brad, in particular, is pinned in the wreckage, bleeding from a cut artery. Buttons tries to slip away from the wreck, but is found by Holly, who pleads with him to save the man she loves. Buttons gives Brad a direct transfusion from Sebastian, who has the same rare blood type. Agent Gregory assists. Later, Special Special Agent Gregory reluctantly arrests Buttons, shaking his hand before handcuffing him and telling him, You're all right. Buttons tells Brad to tell Holly that he will be keeping a date with his girl, suggesting that he may be facing the death penalty. Holly takes command of the show, mounting a parade that leads the whole nearby town to an open-air performance. Brad now realizes how much he loves Holly, but ironically, she now has no time for him because the show must go on. Sebastian proposes to Angel, and she accepts, tying up the last loose end. The movie ends with the spec opening the program the circus making a magnificent recovery from disaster to continue their tour. And we are left with the Barker imploring us to come back once again to see the greatest show on earth. I think we may have alluded to it a couple of times on our program before I became the regular co-host on the show. Uh, This was an episode that I specifically asked Blaine to be a part in, but before I go into any of that. <clears throat> Blaine, I think this was your first time seeing it. What are your initial thoughts of The Greatest Show on Earth? I actually went in with a little bit of trepidation because a lot of film buff groups and a lot of the reputation say that this was the biggest mistake in Oscar history and it was the least deserving Academy Award. This is not even the least deserving winner that we have covered. I found it was a good 150-minute movie that could have been a great 105 or 120 minute movie. So there's actually a lot of really good stuff in here. There are some excellent performances, but I suspect one of the production realities to make this happen, the partnership with the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey's combined show, 
which had to combine to recover because a, a fire in one of the Ringling Brothers' tent killed 167 people five years previously. I think part of the way that to, that they had to make this happen was to partner with a real circus so they didn't have to build everything. And the real circus probably asked for a showcase of their acts. So like some of the earlier uh, ones that we've seen about like, you know, vaudeville specials and things like that, the story can be slowed down when we see big chunks of that act on screen. And I think that hurts the narrative, but was a production reality that could not be avoided. So whether or not it deserves the top spot or not is a part that we will hold to the side until later. But I have zero issues with this being nominated. This is a good movie. It just We'll we'll keep talking about whether or not it is that upper echelon that deserves to take home the biggest award. But I have no problems with this being recognized, at least with a nomination. I can breathe easy now. The show can go on. I have a lot of nostalgic love for this film. I, I think I somewhat have inherited my love of film, particularly from my father's side. My grandmother during a brief period when they uh, lived in Florida, was the first female manager of a theater in Florida. And this film was the biggest box office hit in 1952, which was part of that period when she was managing a movie theater. My grandfather was, I don't know how much of a lover of, a pure lover of film he was, but he was very much into audio-video equipment. And in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, he was the only person I knew who owned an RCA SpectraVision player. And uh, the SpectraVision player, a lot of people kind of confuse it with LaserDisc. It was very similar to LaserDisc, but it actually had a stylus that played the disc instead of a laser, so it's like the love child of a phonograph and a laser disc player, if you will. And when I went to uh, my grandparents' house, inevitably uh, one of two films would end up being played on the SpectraVision, either Star Trek The Motion Picture or The Greatest Show on Earth. And as, as you said, Blaine, it's, it's not one that's particularly fondly remembered, so I, I can only guess that they had it because of my grandmother remembering it so fondly from her time of running a, a theater. But I easily saw this film four to five times a year while my uh, paternal grandparents were still. And when I started branching out in film in high school, I started with the filmographies of Charlton Heston and Jimmy Stewart because of their showcase here. Yeah, and they do both get really good showcases, which is, it is a little bit odd. There's rumors that the reason Jimmy Stewart was not nominated for his role here is because the Academy didn't want to nominate major stars for supporting roles, and it would have been a supporting actor category for him. And Charlton Heston was very early in his career. I think this is his third feature. Yep. So I was surprised to see him this young because I know him 
best from a movie that we'll talk about in about 16 months and was not nominated, but I guarantee it's going to be part of the conversation. We're roughly the same age. If you were growing up in the 80s, even though they were largely retired by then, Charlton Heston and Jimmy Stewart were still known names. Oh, yeah. And here's a film where Charlton Heston is maybe third or fourth build, and Jimmy Stewart has the with credit. So, yeah. But to me, they're clearly this. I mean, I don't want to take anything away from Cornell Wilde or Betty Hutton, but those were the two performances that stayed with. Yeah, Betty Hutton. She played the the job well. There's times, as James Garner put it in his autobiography, you can see her acting. He says a good actor can never be caught acting. And you can see some of that with Betty. But to her credit, Cecil B. DeMille was incredibly demanding of his performers in this because they had to do a lot of their own stunts. So Betty Hutton wasn't just acting. She wasn't just singing. She was doing trapeze stunts, just like Cornell Wilde had to do trapeze stunts on this. Like they, The performers had to perform. Gloria Graham actually was lifted by the elephant in its mouth. They had to do what the circus people were doing. So there's a lot more behind these performances than just the acting. So, yeah, I'm... Essentially, it's, I'm not saying she did a bad job because of the demanding, but I am not surprised that she didn't get Oscar nominations here. When we get into it, there were... One of our core cast members did take home an Oscar this year, but not for this movie. None of the performances in this movie were nominated, and I think Jim Stewart, he could have been nominated had they felt comfortable nominating a supporting role. That does eventually change as we look at Judy Dench winning her Oscar for Shakespeare in Love with, I think, something like six or or ten minutes of total screen time. Right. She's not on screen much. Like, I think she actually, I forget the number, but I think she has the, the record for an acting Oscar with the fewest minutes of screen time. No, you're right, and it's funny that you mention that. I, I was going to save this for when we talk about the nominations, but... Gloria Graham held the record until Network, and Network held the record until Shakespeare in Love. But yeah, so we have Charlton Heston here as Brad Braden, with a name that only Stan Lee could love. In a lot of ways, he's playing straight man to everyone else, but I think he's, I think he's fine here. Jimmy Stewart is the standout here. He does his own clowning. I mean, because I'll, I'll go ahead and mention that. Clowning is itself an art form, and Jimmy Stewart was um, mentored by Lou Jacobs um, during the film. Other than the picture that Agent Gregory is taking around, you never see Jimmy Stewart out of clown makeup in this film. You see him without his nose and his hair, and but he always has at least the white makeup on. And what I, what I like, and something that I think was smart was, you know, the synopsis from Wikipedia uh, makes it a plot point of that was so nobody would recognize him because his character is a man on the run. But 
until the climax train crash, you never see any of the other clowns when they're not performing without their makeup on. So Emmett Kelly, for example, always has his weary willy makeup on, even when they're joking around on the circus lot, so that it doesn't stand out that Jimmy Stewart is always wearing his makeup. But I think he I think you're right. I think his is probably the strongest acting performance here. I like the concept of the circus. I'm old enough that I still remember um, when the circus would come to the um, auditorium in Nashville, either the Shriner Circus or um, the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. As an entertainment form, the American Circus, it's, it, it's not dead, but it's mostly limited to just uh, small uh, regional shows now. So I, I completely agree with you in terms of some of the circus acts slowing things down. At the same time, I do kind of like that we've got this time capsule of this type of show kind of preserved at its. I was briefly into clowning in high school, and here, you know, you do have Lou Jacobs and Emmett Kelly, probably two of the most famous circus clowns of the 20th century in their prime doing some of their original bits. So I am glad that we kind of have this preserved for posterity. Yeah, that that is an upside to this because it you know, the circus I intellectually know I have been to the circus. My parents took my sister and I when we were young and I I have no clear memory. I just know that I was there because I've been told I was there and it hasn't really come through since because as you say it is fading. And I live in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. So it's, you know, the next major city is three hours away. And, you know, if the circus is traveling by train, it's way more than three hours to get there because oddly the trains are mostly parallel. We don't have a direct north-south connection. So yeah, we don't have a lot of opportunity to see the circus here. So it is nice to have that preserved. I just wish it didn't get in the way of the story because this I don't know that that's a it's a nice side effect but if the circus had remained popular and kept going around no I don't know if that would have been that much of an added value to this piece although I mean it does make a difference according to the IMDB trivia when Steven Spielberg was six years old his dad said okay I'm taking you to the circus and he took him to this movie (laughs) And that was part of what made Spielberg fall in love with movies, was seeing this exact film. So at the very least, you know, you got to give it that. If this is why Steven Spielberg is around today, and we will be discussing his work later because, you know, he's one of his films has won that Best Picture Oscar. That much you can't turn down. You cannot say, okay, well, you know, this has no value. It's if it did at least that much intentionally or otherwise. That was a huge addition to film. Right. And well, and I'm going to bring it up because I'm staring at her name. I think the character who most kind of exemplifies that bloat is Phyllis. Dorothy, Dorothy L'Amour is fine here, but that was obvi- I feel like that was obviously a case of Paramount shoving in one of their name performers. But like the character of Phyllis adds nothing to the film at all. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. She's got that one joke early on just to to say she's not too bright, which is part of what attracted Dorothy Lamour to this part. She wanted to play against type, and she was campaigning for that, and this was a chance for her to play against type. She hadn't played someone who would say, you know, hear that the circus has to stay in the black and think, okay, we all have to perform in blackface, which is... And just to be clear, given the current context, there are no blackface performances no. in this film. It was just her character's misunderstanding of what was going on, which would have been... A reasonable question in 1952, because while blackface performances were were dying out, they would have been a recent enough thing to have been considered part of a performance in a show like this. Coming along with her, we have a cameo from uh, Bing Crosby and Bob Hope. That That is one of the fun things is seeing who pops up in some of the crowd shots. Yeah. Yeah, that, I was surprised when I was seeing these faces in the crowd, so... And I, I always like to throw something Mike Bailey's way. I don't know if he ever listens to our show, but this is our second film in a row with a Noel Neal appearance because she's in, um, I think, the crowd scene with um, Danny Thomas. Yeah. Yeah, she was one of those cameos. And uh, we, we briefly discussed her last month because she has a small scene with Gene Kelly in An American in Paris. She's the... I'm I'm doing air quotes at my mic. She's the obnoxious art student who criticizes his work very early on in the film. Yes, and uh, she is credited as Noel in this. So, yeah, we also have Edmund O'Brien in this. Let me actually just quickly sure. run through the the names I recognize in these uncredited roles because there's a lot of them. Um, we have Dorothy Adams. We have. Vicky Back and Gladys and or Gladys and Oliver Blake, William Boyd as Hopalong Cassidy. He was actually a performer as Hopalong Cassidy. So we have Lane Chandler, we have Lydia Clark, and I'm listing maybe one in ten of these, just the names that jump out. Bing and Bob Crosby, Cecil B. DeMille was uncredited as the narrator in this. He was also director and producer. We've got Rosemary Dvorak. We have Mary Field, Best Flowers, Mona Freeman. We've got William Hall, Peter Hansen, Bob Hope, Ethan Laidlaw. We've already mentioned Noel Neal, David Newell. We've already mentioned Edmund O'Brien. Keith Richards, but not that Keith Richards. It's Dorothy Vernon, Beverly Washburn, Robert Wiens, and Alberta Zoppeo, or Alberto Zoppe, and... A huge number of these that I probably skipped because I mostly know them from Hollywood, but a lot of these performances were the actual Ringling and Barlow and mm -hmm. Bailey's performers. So there's a lot of names here that don't have photos that mean nothing to me that are almost certainly the actual circus performers. This is also one of the few times when you will see Disney characters in a non-Disney film. Yes, that was part of the Circus Act. Yeah, because this would have been filmed in... This was released January of 52, so it would have been, you know, filmed in 51. Disneyland was not... I won't say it wasn't an idea, but it certainly wasn't open yet. It wouldn't open until 1954, so to help promote the films, Disney would license you know, characters of his characters to be at shows like 
the circus. So, you know, here they're helping promote Alice in Wonderland. I don't think it was an explicit license. Like, I think it was more, they were, as you said, they were there because it was part of the show. I don't, I'm not aware of Paramount working out any direct deal with Disney, but the the only other time I can, that I've seen that I can recollect uh, this has happened is in the Laurel and Hardy March of the Wooden Soldiers, where Disney allowed Hal Roach to have a quote-unquote live-action um, Mickey Mouse as one of the fairy tale characters in that film. But um, I, I just find it kind of charming and unique that, you know, you have Mickey, Donald, Alice, and the Mad Hatter in a Paramount picture. Yeah, it definitely is. And if I'm remembering the Disney History Institute podcast accurately, Disney wasn't too picky about that. He considered it free advertising when people were doing that until some shows went in decidedly non-Disney directions. And that's when they really started to, to crack down on it. But I don't remember if this would have been before or after that crackdown, which was before Disneyland. Uh, but yeah, Disneyland was certainly an idea, but not running yet. If you check out the Disney History Institute web blog and podcast by Todd James Pierce, you will learn everything you ever wanted to know about the Disney parks and more. He's done an incredible job. So, yeah. So, shall we go through the nominations list for the year? Yes. Okay. We have obviously Greatest Show on Earth one Best Picture. It beat out other nominees, High Noon, Ivanhoe, Moulin Rouge, and The Quiet Man. Best Director went to John Ford for The Quiet Man, beating out Joseph L. Mankiewicz for The Five Fingers, Cecil B. DeMille for Greatest Show on Earth, Fred Zinnemann for High Noon, and John Huston for Moulin Rouge. Best Actor went to Gary Cooper for High Noon, beating out Marlon Brando for Via Zapata, Kirk Douglas for The Bad and the Beautiful, Jose Ferrer for Moulin Rouge, and Alec Guinness for The Lavender Hill Mob. Best Actress went to Shirley Booth for Comeback Little Sheba, beating out Joan Crawford in Sudden Fear, Betty Davis in The Star, Julie Harris in The Member of the Wedding, and Susan Hayward for With a Song in My Heart. Best Supporting Actor went to Anthony Quinn for Via Zapata, up against Richard Burton for My Cousin Rachel, Arthur Honeycutt for The Big Sky, Victor McLaughlin for The Quiet Man, and Jack Palance for Sudden Fear. Gloria Graham won... Best Supporting Actress for her role in The Bad and the Beautiful. She was also Angel in this film. She beat out Gene Hagen for Singing in the Rain, which is the first but certainly not last mention of that film today. Colette Marchand for Moulin Rouge, Terry Moore for Come Back Little Sheba, and Thelma Ritter for With a Song in My Heart. Best Screenplay went to Bad and the Beautiful, beating out Five Fingers, High Noon, Man in the White Suit, and The Quiet Man. Best Story and Screenplay went to The Lavender Hill Mob, beating out The Atomic City, Breaking the Sound Barrier, Pat and Mike, and Via Zapata. Best Story went to The Greatest Show on Earth. It's second of two wins this year. It beat out My Son John, The Narrow Margin, The Pride of St. Louis, and The Sniper. For Best Documentary Feature, The Sea Around Us, Beat the Hosters, and Navajo. Best Documentary Short Subject, Neighbors, Beat out Double Take Us, Garden Spider, and Man Alive. I am trying to figure out how Neighbors qualified as a documentary. Have you seen Neighbors by Norman McLaren? I have not. It was produced through the National Film Board of Canada, so I think nfb.ca will let you stream it for free. It's purely metaphorical. I don't 
understand how something that uses like pixelation and animation and stop motion, it, it it's a wonderful little film. I just think it's in the wrong category. So the best live action short subject one reel went to Light in the Window, beating out Athletes of the Saddle, Desert Killers, Neighbors, and Royal Scotland. Here, Neighbors, I totally support in that category. Okay. Best live action two reel short subject went to Waterbirds, beating out Bridge of Time, Devil Take Us, and Thar She Blows. The best short subject for cartoons, Johan Mouse won, beating out Little Johnny Jet, Madeline, Pink and Blue Blues, and The Romance of Transportation in Canada. Best scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture went to High Noon, beating out Ivanhoe, The Miracle of Our Lady of Fatima, The Thief, and Via Zapata. Best scoring a musical went to Song in, or With a Song in My Heart, sorry, beating out Hans Christian Andersen, The Jazz Singer, The Medium, and Singing in the Rain. I wasn't aware there was a 1952 version of The Jazz Singer. Best song went to The Ballad of High Noon, beating out songs from Son of Pale Face, Before Your Mind, Hans Christian Andersen, and Just For You. Best sound recording went to Breaking the Sound Barrier, beating out The Card, Hans Christian Andersen, The Quiet Man, and With a Song in My Heart. Art direction Black and White went to The Bad and the Beautiful, beating out Carrie, My Cousin Rachel, Rashomon, and Via Zapata. Best art direction color went to Moulin Rouge, beating out Hans Christian Andersen, Merry Widow, The Quiet Man, and The Snows of Kilimanjaro. Cinematography Black and White went to The Bad and the Beautiful, beating out The Big Sky, My Cousin Rachel, Navajo, and Sudden Fear. Color Cinematography went to The Quiet Man, beating out Hans Christian Andersen, Ivanhoe, Million Dollar Mermaid, and Snows of Kilimanjaro. Black and White Costume Design went to Helen Rose for The Bad and the Beautiful, beating out An Affair in Trinidad, Carrie, My Cousin Rachel, and Sudden Fear. Color Costume Design Marcel Vertez took it home for Moulin Rouge. Greatest Show on Earth was nominated with Edith Head, Dorothy Jenkins, and Miles White. And I think Edith Head holds the record. She's got eight Academy Awards for costume design. Mm -hmm. Also nominated were the works for Hans Christian Andersen, The Merry Widow, and With a Song in My Heart. And Best Film Editing went to High Noon, beating out Come Back Little Sheba, Flat Top, Greatest Show on Earth, and Moulin Rouge. The honorary awards went to George Alfred Mitchell, for designing a new type of camera, Joseph M. Schenck for long and distinguished service to the motion picture industry, Marion C. Cooper for his many innovations and contributions to the art of motion pictures, Harold Lloyd, master comedian and good citizen, Bob Hope for his contribution to laughter of the world to his service to the motion picture industry and his devotion to the American premise, and Plymouth Adventure for best special effects. So that's no longer a standing category, but can still get the awards. Best foreign language film went to Forbidden Games from France, which has been on my to-watch list for far too long, and if that beat out Rashomon, I definitely need to see it. And then finally, the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award went to Cecil B. DeMille, who obviously produced and directed this film. And this ceremony was also the first Academy Awards ceremony to be televised. And the first to be hosted by a future president of the United States. Yes, Ronald Reagan was one of the presenters. You alluded to this on the top of the show. Let's go ahead and talk about the elephant in the room, which is kind of appropriate with this film. You know, did this film deserve best picture? If someone wanted to make an argument for High Noon or The Quiet Man, I would accept those arguments. But for for folks who want to say, you know, the who questioned whether the film should have even been nominated or anything like that. 
I at least believe The Greatest Show on Earth is a better film than Ivanhoe and Moulin Rouge. But because of my nostalgia, to be fair, I made a point of making sure that I hunted down and watched all of these to kind of, you know, leave no stone unturned, if you will. Mm-hmm. There are stronger performances in High Noon and The Quiet Man. So I think from a acting perspective, if it's the performances that you're looking for, I could easily see those topping this as best picture. In terms of the art craft of making the film itself and what it took to direct the picture and produce the picture, I think that's where The Greatest Show on Earth comes out ahead from a lot of its competitors in this category. And I think it hurts it in other categories. Um, I think if they had not used a real circus, you probably would have seen, if this was all done in a back lot and with stages, you would have seen potentially nominations for things like art direction. And I am, I, I will say this again, because I've seen Moulin uh, Rouge and Ivanhoe, I am surprised this didn't get at least a cinematography color nod. Yeah, I can, I can see that from where I'm standing. Yeah, I, I haven't seen Ivanhoe or Moulin Rouge and High Noon and The Quiet Man. I haven't seen recently. I have seen them, but High Noon, if I remember it accurately, and the fact that it hasn't stayed with me after this time, to me, says something. That one could have been done effectively on a back lot. So you're right. It does not have nearly the production scale of The Greatest Show on Earth. And The Quiet Man is good for a John Wayne movie, but I don't know if I've ever seen a John Wayne movie that I would consider great. I don't understand a lot of his appeal. But the elephant in the room to me is that the best picture of 1952 was not among the nominations. So I would agree that you could make a case for High Noon and Quiet Man taking the award over Greatest Show on Earth when you're restricted to what made the ballot. Yes. But the choice of what goes on the ballot had serious issues. If we look at the feature films released in 1952 as ranked on IMDb by users, if you go for feature films released in this year with at least 1,000 votes, The Greatest Show on Earth comes in at number 63 out of 78, which, having seen it, I think is low. Number one is Singing in the Rain. And then it's followed by Akiro, Umberto D, The Life of Uharu, Limelight is the second English-language film, The Emperor and the Golem, Forbidden Games, High Noon is number eight, The Quiet Man is number nine. And then we're getting into The Narrow Margin and so forth. If we look at Letterboxd, which tend to be a little more aligned with the critics, The Greatest Show on Earth fares much better. It shows up as actually number 13 for the year. And looking at the films above it, there's, yeah, seven of those 13 are not English language films, which really struggle to win Best Picture. Number one, again, is Singing in the Rain. Then we have Akiru, High Noon, Umberto D, The Quiet Man, Uharu. Then there's The Bad and the Beautiful, Limelight, Forbidden Games, Europa 51, La Placer, and The Flavor of Green Tea Over Rice. So I would say, historically speaking, the movie that should have won was Singing in the Rain, and it wasn't nominated. 
I can get behind that. Do, do you have insight into how the nominations were done at this time? Like, I know today the studios kind of have to submit and back a nomination. Yeah, and I, there might have been elements. I don't know in detail. I do know that in order to receive votes, you have to, the audience had to have seen it. And Singing in the Rain opened on the East Coast first and then migrated west. So though it did show in Los Angeles, it didn't show for very long before it broke even, at which point it was yanked from theaters and they were sent copies of An American in Paris instead because MGM was pushing that hard for the previous year's award. So Singing in the Rain was an early 1952 release that went away very, very quickly. So the voting audience may not have had a chance to see it at that time because that was primarily in Los Angeles. If we look at the Golden Globe Awards for that year, the best drama also went to Greatest Show on Earth. So they recognized it as the best dramatic film, beating out Come Back Little Sheba, The Happy Time, High Noon, and The Thief. Best motion picture, comedy, or musical went to With a Song in My Heart. Other nominees are Hans Christian Andersen, I'll See You in My Dreams, Singing in the Rain, and Stars and Stripes Forever. And I haven't seen With a Song in My Heart. I don't know that I've heard of With a Song in My Heart. It's a 1952 biographical film which tells the story of actress and singer Jane Froman, who was crippled by an airplane crash in 1943. But Singing in the Rain is usually on the shortlist when people are talking about the greatest musicals of all time. So I, I think MGM's under service of Singing in the Rain at the time heard it across all award ceremonies. I certainly don't come here to denigrate any film. But when I'm looking at Ivanhoe nominated as an MGM picture, I'm just, why would you not put, I mean, I get that they were trying to back an American in Paris, but obviously that was a contender for 51. Singing in the Rain was a contender for 52. Why they didn't somehow try to reverse course and get Singing in the Rain better play, I'll I'll never understand. I mean, Gene Hagen was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, so it it had to be on the Academy's radar. Yeah, that was one of its nominations. It At the Golden Globes, uh, just running through those, Gary Cooper won Best Dramatic Actor for High Noon. Shirley Booth won Best Dramatic Actress for Come Back Little Sheba, so there it's total agreement. And then for the Comedy and Musicals, Best Performance by an Actor in a Motion Picture Comedy or Musical went to Donald O'Connor for Singing in the Rain. The Actress went to Susan Hayward for With a Song in My Heart. So I'm wondering if her performance was just so incredible that's part of what pushed it up in the zeitgeist there. And then Supporting Role went to Millard Mitchell for My Six Convicts. Now, Millard Mitchell also played the head of the studio in Singing in the Rain. So same Mm -hmm. actor, different role. Best Supporting Actress was Katie Gerardo for High Noon. Best Direction went to Cecil B. DeMille for The Greatest Show on Earth beating out Richard Fleischer for The Happy Time and John Ford for The Quiet Man. Best Screenplay, Five Fingers, beat out High Noon and The Thief. Best Score, High Noon, beat out Ivanhoe and The Quiet Man. Cinematography went to High Noon, beating out The Four Poster and The Thief. Color Cinematography went to The Greatest Show on Earth with no other nominees listed. Wow, okay. And then Promoting International Understanding went to Anything Can Happen, beating out Assignment Paris and Ivanhoe. Special Achievement Award went to Francis Key Teller. The Henrietta Award for World Film Favorites went to Susan Hayward and John Ford. 
The Cecil B. DeMille Award went to Walt Disney, beating out Stanley Kramer and Alf Adolf Zucker. The new star of the year went to Richard Burton for My Cousin Rachel. And then, you know, beating out Aldo Ray for Pat and Mike and Robert Wagner for Stars and Stripes Forever. And the new star of the year actress, Colette Von Schad went got it for Moulin Rouge. Rita Gam was nominated for The Thief, and Katie Gerardo was nominated for High Noon. And Best Juvenile Performance went to Brandon DeWild for The Member of the Wedding, beating out Francis Key Teller for Navajo and George Winslow for My Pal Gus. So Singing in the Rain did a little better at the Golden Globes than the Oscars. But if you're looking at sort of the lens of history, well, there, it, it just won the year. So even Rotten Tomatoes which I noticed the score for because I, I own this through iTunes and it actually shows mm-hmm. the Rotten Tomato scores. If we look at the score details, it's got a 42% on Rotten Tomatoes. That's so unfair. <laughs> yeah, that's the critic scores. Now, some of that is the way Rotten Tomatoes works because the average rating is 5.5 out of 10. So remember, Rotten Tomatoes does not give you the average critic score. It tells you the percentage of critics that rated at, I think, the equivalent of a 7 out of 10 or higher. So if you have one movie, say you have 100 critics, and every one of them rates a movie at 8 out of 10, that movie's got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Whereas another movie, if 99% give it 10 out of 10, and the last one gives it 1 out of 10, that has a lower Rotten Tomato score, even though it's got a higher average score. Because they're literally reporting on the percentage of the population that scored at 7 over 10 or higher. Whereas the audience score is a 54%. So this is saying audiences like it more than critics, but that's giving it an average rating of 3.36 out of 5, which is, yeah, it's also not a a great rating, but it's consistent with the IMDb's 6.6. It's slightly higher than that. Letterboxd gives it a 2.7 out of 5, which still makes it 13th of the year. So... That's, I know Rotten Tomatoes is incredibly popular as a rating site right now, but I don't use it a lot because the actual number they report is often not the number that people think they're reporting. That's one of the things I like about both Letterboxd and the IMDb is that you can click for more details and it will show you the bell curve and the actual voting distribution. I say you have to click. IMDb makes you click to see that distribution. With Letterboxd, it's just there from the start. So you can see if something is a divisive film with huge spikes at 10 and 1 and not much in the middle. So if we look at the IMDb rating, yeah, the mean average is 6.6, but the median and mode averages, so the most common score and the score in the middle of a sorted list is a 7 out of 10. So and so it's mostly 7s, some 6s, and then 8 is the next most popular score. To see that when you're on the IMDb, just click on the number of votes under the scoring, and it'll give you the breakdown, and you can even check it by demographic. Okay. So this is rated most highly with uh, females of age 45 or higher. Their average is 7.1, and it's being really pulled down by the three males under the age of 18 who have voted on it. They give it a 4.3. There are no females under the age of 18 who have voted on this movie. Hmm. So there's only three in that under 18 category at all, which is not super surprising because I'm I'm also thinking the under 18 demographic is unlikely to go to the IMDb as their public rating system. They are more likely to do their ratings elsewhere. 
Yeah. So as far as that part of the discussion is concerned, uh, this is, I think we can agree that, you know, some people are saying that, well, this or the much later crash are often cited as two of the biggest mistakes that the Academy has made. I cannot agree with that. I think the biggest mistake they made in 1952 wasn't giving the top award to this movie. It was leaving Singing in the Rain off the ballot. No, I, I, I'd agree with that. And, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to denigrate any film, but m- most people, out of what was nominated, most people seem to put High Noon above this. Uh, there are some great performances in High Noon. It's a, it's a very tense film. If you haven't seen it before, I find that unlike some of Hitchcock's best work, the tension doesn't work as well on repeat um, on repeat viewings. But I just think in terms of um, scale of production, spectacle, and directing craft, for, for lack of a better word, uh, and I'm not, again, I'm not denigrating High Noon. I'm not denigrating um, Fred Zinnemann. I, I do think, in my personal opinion, I think the greatest show on earth is equal to, um, if not better than um, High Noon. If I, now, again, this may have been the age that I saw this, but if High Noon had been on the Spectrovision player, when I turned, you know, 16 and got to where I had my own, you know, video rental card and was able to ride the bus to or drive myself to the rental store. I don't know that I would have been seeking out the films of Gary Cooper based off of um, High Noon, but there was something about The Greatest Show on Earth that made me want to see more Charlton Heston and Jimmy Stewart. So, yeah, I can buy that. And even reading the, the trivia for this. There are people who've submitted responses to this whole, you know, biggest Academy mistake, and they, that's not the way it was seen when the award was given. So that, generally speaking, audiences were happy with Greatest Show on Earth winning the award in 1952, which I can see. Like, it's, I think, editing out some of the circus performances would have made for a stronger film, but I also think that what we are seeing are entertainers who see a movie that showcase a struggling form of entertainment and do it really well. So I think that this part of the reason this did so well at the Academy Awards is because the people working in Hollywood recognized the struggles of the circus, felt they were unwarranted, and appreciated how this was putting the circus back in the limelight and might be helping that entire industry. So, you know, when you also like to give the award to movies that have an impact, like Gentleman's Agreement or, you know, some of these other message pieces, I think that the idea of using this to bolster the circus would have appealed to the voters. So even though it's not the way I would vote today, if I were a voter in 1952, I might have made that same choice they did. It was extremely popular with audiences. I mean, I would never be so crass as to say dollar signs equals quality, right? But it is a reflection of the appetite for something. And The Greatest Show on Earth was the top grossing film of 
1952 with 12.8 million. The, the next nominated film is Ivanhoe with 5.8 million. Then you jump down to Moulin Rouge, 4.2 million. Quiet Man and uh, High Noon both are around 3.5 million. So it earned double at the box office of any of its competitors. And I don't have it up here in front of me. I I suspect it's extremely low because of all of the reasons that you've given, but I'm wondering what Sing It in the Rain's box office gross in 52 was. In 52, it was about half a million. Yeah, so there you go. Yeah, it wasn't, un- but that was because it was yanked from right, the theaters right. for a large part. When it was re-released following the segments in Nats Entertainment around 1970, there was clamor for it. That did pull it up, but only to about 10 million. So it, while that was delayed because it wasn't new, it still didn't quite catch up. And I don't know necessarily that it, it would have, because if that's, if those are the numbers, yes, Singing in the Rain did eventually hit 10 million on re-release, which doesn't do as well as the original, but it was a re-release 18 years later where you needed fewer tickets to hit that same number because the ticket prices go up. So, yeah, I... But again, 1970 was past the heyday of the musical. But yeah, that's when Singing in the Rain really took off was after the first That's Entertainment came out and people saw the actual Singing in the Rain sequence and generated enough demand for this seemingly lost Gene Kelly film that they put out a theatrical re-release where it did very well for a theatrical release. So yeah, so odds are had it been given a fair shot, it would have been the only serious competition. I think so. So I don't think we can go back and say it would have won, but it, I think it would have, yeah, it, it would have been the, the the toughest one. And also we, I think we're seeing a trend for the Academy, you know, coming out of World War II, voting for the upbeat, optimistic movies again. Yes, we're also entering, with color being more cost efficient, We're getting back to kind of, some people would call them epics, but I'm calling them um, spectacle films. You know, got a lot, some of the musicals fall into that category, like An American in Paris and Singing in the Rain. You have films like The Robe and The Ten Commandments and Ben Hur coming up in this decade, which are also kind of those big epic films. And I think The Greatest Show on Earth was kind of intended to be. Um, one of those, you're also in the period of McCarthyism. So I don't think the blacklist had happened yet. Uh, it it had happened recently. That's actually another one in the, the trivia. One of the speculations for why High Noon did not do so well is because its screenwriter had just been blacklisted a couple of weeks before the voting began. Okay, and one of the screenwriters on Ivanhoe had uh, would be black or had been blacklisted as well. So there is that specter hanging over things, and I don't know if it was viewed as such at the time, but a lot of people um, consider High Noon to be a commentary on McCarthyism, and I could see that making several people. Um, in the academy, uncomfortable. Yeah, that you might have just been a little too touchy at the time. In the unlikely 
event that anyone that anyone who's listening to this hasn't seen high noon the the very short premise is a gunslinger is coming back to town on the day of of the sheriff's retirement and marriage and he can't get anyone in the town to stand up he doesn't feel comfortable abandoning the town to its fate and he can't get anyone else in the town to stand up with him and help him deal with the gunslinger and his uh, accomplices. And I think that's where the kind of phrase high noon entered the popular lexicon. So in the end, who would you recommend this to? It, it's a little bit old-fashioned, but I, I, I actually think this is a good one for kids. It, it, it is upbeat. It's pretty lighthearted. There are a lot of lurid themes under the covers but they go but they never they never dwell on it you know you know from the film that buttons was involved with the death of a girlfriend or a wife and you know and he's on the run for it but there there are never any more details about it than that yeah well aside from finding out that she was a few months away from death anyway, so right. it was probably a euthanasia mercy killing. The great Sebastian's hand is paralyzed, but of course, we're given to believe that he's got feeling in that hand, so there's a sense that he'll recover. Everybody's paired off as a couple at the end, so I mean, it, it, it's pretty uplifting. While the circus acts do drag the runtime out, you are seeing probably some of the best in the game from in those fields, um, performing those stunts and doing those acts. Uh, so from that point, I think it'd be pretty um, entertaining. If you're a Charlton Heston and Jimmy Stewart fan, you know, if I asked anybody to name the, their top five Jimmy Stewart or Charlton Heston films, this would not be on anybody's list. And that means that those folks should go and check out this movie. Yeah, I will give you that. Like you said, it is very optimistic to the point. I forgot to mention this earlier i was almost surprised when the detective did take buttons with him after seeing that performance and after that and when he arrests buttons mr henderson is right there who seems to be a crime boss trying to corrupt things i was ready for him to say well gee too bad i couldn't find that doctor but mr henderson sir you can come with me right now right <laughs> that you know that was kind of what i was expecting I can recommend this, if you have any interest in the circus, check it out. Because, as you said, this has become that time capsule of seeing peak 20th century circus performances. And, yeah, the performances from Heston and Stewart are great. Yeah, this is a good movie. It doesn't deserve to be as maligned as it is in the the history of the Oscars. It's just, yeah, I mean, I... I have much greater issues with Cavalcade taking home the award than this. I have bigger issues with it, you know, awards. Again, not going to Citizen Kane, but again, I think like Singing in the Rain, a lot of that was because of the opportunity of the voting population to see the film more than the film itself. I also think it's aged pretty well, especially for something that focuses on kind of a media or a form of entertainment that's in its decline, I don't think there's anything here that modern audiences would find a offense to. You know, as opposed to, like, 
our Gone with the Wind episode recently was uh, released, and, you know, I, I was listening to it, and, you know, you, Paul, and I kept coming back to what a beautiful film with great performances about horrible subject matter, right? You, you know, mm -hmm. you don't have that here. I, I think both, and I think I messed her name up in the synopsis, and I apologize, but I think both Angel and Holly have remarkable agency here. Yeah. Yeah, they are very strong women. And it, Gloria Graham has a much bigger career than I realized. Growing up, she was Ada Annie and that other girl from It's a Wonderful Life. And yet she keeps cropping up over and over as we're going through these movies. And this is one of her strong performances. And one of the things that I will give her credit for, she has a habit of her history of playing women who are in control of know of their relationships she she has a habit of playing women who aren't just looking to settle down and be mommies although i mean her happy ending is getting married but for a lot of the movie she is totally okay with going from one guy to another and nothing being permanent which is how you feel about that attitude one way or the other that was an attitude that was accepted in the male population far sooner than the female population and there shouldn't be that gender divide and this is one of the first cases where they said, no, women can be like this too, and that's okay. The only point in this film when Angel has to be saved by a male is when Klaus is bullying her and threatening to have the elephant step on her face. And I think that's an extraordinary enough circumstance that I didn't feel like that came off poorly. And it's not so much that a man needed to save her, but Somebody close to the animal that the elephant would respond to needed to save her. You know what I mean? So, yeah, because and it wasn't just because she was giving the elephant orders too, and it was only that you know Klaus was overriding them, right? Because the elephant often does right. what she wants. It was just Klaus was there. So yeah, when Brad comes in, Brad came in with that. There was the tool that elephant trainer uses to pull that have the elephant raise its leg. So it wasn't just the voice commands. He came in and he, he had that tool under the leg and was pulling it up. Yes, I would say that the only thing that really dates the film is on the special effects side. Because when they've got the, you know, one image superimposed over the other, as they frequently do in the film, you know, like with a lot of the trapeze acts, they're done in close-up, superimposed over the background, if you can see the ground, because clearly their actors were working with nets. Right. right. So some of that is dated to the point that it will jump out right away in the way that it would in every film made for at least 25 more years. Because I think it was really Richard Donner's Superman in 1978 that finally made that invisible. And even then they recognized some of the issues and corrected for it. So there's one way they were doing green screening where there's green halos around the actresses because they weren't, it wasn't cut well because of the film masters and negatives. They couldn't go back and redo it. So they insert a shot of people turning on green-colored spotlights on those actresses to justify the green around them. And just a little bit in the parade at the end where Holly's actually transparent, so you could see some of the parade through her. Right. But, you know, you, you had also, you had transparencies like that in the, the cockpit of the Snowspeeders in Empire Strikes Back in 1980. So it's not that the special effects were bad, it's that they were pushing technology that modern audiences have seen mature. It, this is 
Well, it, it is a 70-year-old film, and it was trying to tell a story that just it the technology couldn't make it seamless at the time it was made. They couldn't have gotten it any closer to seamless than they did, but it is something modern audiences will notice. So I'm, I don't know, yeah, I'm, I'm not trying to bash it because they couldn't have done better, but that is one thing that a modern sure. audience will see. And that's probably one of the detriment of our technology now. While I love that film is restored and preserved, defects that wouldn't show up on a 19-inch tube TV do tend to kind of stand out on, you know, high-def computer monitors and tablets and everything else. So. Yeah. So shall we tell people what to expect next month? Yes. But before we do, um, I would like to remind all of our listeners to, or actually ask, that they please engage with us. We have a uh, 99 Wards 100 Films Facebook page. You can email us at uh, the Bureau 42 site or leave us a voicemail. We would love to hear from everyone. And if you're listening to the show and going, wow, I wish they had talked about film. Maybe somebody's listening and going, you know, I'm glad you guys cover The Greatest Show on Earth. I know it doesn't really fit into your remit, but I'd love to hear you guys talk about High Noon more. Blaine, is there a way that they could do that? Yes, we are. Actually, at this point, at the time that people are listening to this, our Patreon should be up and running. So you can go to anchor.fm, which is our homepage, and leave voicemail about any movie at any time. And Trey and I have already discussed if that feedback comes in, we will be happy to create specific feedback episodes so we can respond to them promptly and have that conversation without worrying about our voting ahead schedule. And we are looking at a Patreon for actually all of the podcasts that I'm involved in. And one of the rewards is to just get Trey and I together to discuss the movie of your choice, that Academy Award nominated or otherwise. The only real restriction on that is that Trey and I both have legal access to the film. So if it's on streaming services we both have, or if there's a streaming service that has it that's available in both the U.S. and Canada, or if we just happen to own it, right? If, if we both have access to it, then it is fair game for a Patreon supporter to jump in and request. That's right. So we'd love to hear from everybody, and we will see you next month when we discuss the classic From Here to Eternity. Yes, the one that was nominated up against Julius Caesar, The Robe, Roman Holiday, and Shane. And there seems to be a pattern here where three of the five films are fondly remembered decades down the road, and the other two, I am barely aware of their existence. See you next time, everybody. Thank you for listening. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.